Welcome to the Business of Beverages, drinks industry insights with makers, marketeers, and mischief. Hello, and welcome to BizBob's BizBob. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can definitively say that the GABA spirit is taking effect. <laughs> BizBob, Jesus Christ. Uh, BizBev Pod's weekly quiz. You know, I'm, I'm still suffering from the... the Tra- catastrophic 2-0 loss last week I blanked I blanked really badly and uh, look I'm, I'm nervous now coming into this well I think have all your beer buddies been on to you giving out about the fact that Pliny the Elder of all the beers you didn't know it yep turn off my phone <laughs> <laughs> left the phone off last Tuesday it was fine <laughs> I'm not ashamed at all I think you're a little bit ashamed oh, I'm very ashamed very very <laughs> I opened. I messed up the opening line of this, so you know, it's, it's clearly still on me that uh, you know I've got, I've got the yips now. Now, just relax, take it easy. Why don't you ask the questions this week? All right, I will. I will ask questions. So, well, for five points, this brand started in 1847 as the <laughs> National Wine and Spirits Distillery. Uh, before hiring two men who would change the fortunes of the company uh, when they were hired in 1863. Anheuser-Busch. It's not Anheuser-Busch. Okay. Yeah. But like, it, it does sound like Anheuser-Busch would definitely take over the National Wine and Spirits Distillery. I, no, but I'm just... It was around the right yeah. time, and I, I just thought, here, two men. Off we go. Right, Off we go. Right. That's four points. Let's see how we go. Okay, so uh, having heard the two guys in 1863, they had their first exports to New York City in 1867. Uh, this also coincided with a multi-award-winning period, such as Dublin 1865, Paris 1867 and 1878, Vienna 1873, Philadelphia 1876. And these dates are still recorded on the bottle label. I don't actually know what award it was. Wikipedia didn't give me that detail. <laughs> so... I am. Um, mm. uh, I'm thinking this is Irish <laughs> because you mentioned Dublin first, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm very easily led. Um, and I'm wondering, it, mm, I'm going to say. Bushmills. It's not Bushmills. Bushmill did do a, like, had a sudden spurt of growth in the 1870s, 1880s, and they actually hired their own ships for exporting to the States and to New York specifically, I think. And that's kind of, and it continues to have medals on its label. Mm-hmm. So that's where I was going with that one. Yep. Uh, incorrect. But uh, I, I, I genuinely, I'm assuming maybe it was a World Fair or something oh, yeah, that may have been true. held in those cities at the time. Um, but maybe maybe for three points, this will help you with the uh, the, the brand. The location of its production, Pessione, in Italy, <laughs> was very carefully chosen due to its proximity to winemakers in Piedmont, the botanical rich foothills in the Alps, the vermouth trade in Turin, and easy access to the port of Genoa. So we're looking for one of our famous Italian <laughs> yes. um, vermouths or Amaro's. Martini. It is Martini. Woo! 
I was trying to remember what the label looks like. It doesn't still have um, medals on it. I think it does. It does. Um, various variations include Rosso, Extra Dry, Bianco, Asti, uh, Gran Luso, and Dolce. And the blending of the product is passed down from master to master through the last eight generations. They always hire a master blender and a master herbalist going all the way back to when they hired Alessandro Martini and Luigi Rosso. Martini Rosso. Mm-hmm. Mm. So there you go. When you're yeah, that was, good, you get your name put on the label. Uh, it was founded by four different gentlemen and they hired the two guys. And within two years, the two lads had ownership of the company. Dead right. Yeah. Um, well, congratulations! Um, I we I think we've been waiting for we've been waiting for Martini for quite <laughs> yeah, a long time. Yes. Um, we guessed Martini. What's the other one we always guessed? Geneva. Yes, yes. It's yes. never Geneva. It's never Geneva. Uh, okay, so uh, what did I look at it there? Three, three, three. Oh, that, a very respectable three points. Oh, three is mm. not too bad. Three is not too bad. Okay, so are you ready? Yes. Deep breath. Back on the horse for five points. The name of this product is a combination of Latin and 19th century science fiction. Fuck off. <laughs> it could be translated as the strength of an ox. <laughs> it's better than a start date. We're always uh, yeah, trying yes, doing yeah, start, start dates. And I'm, yeah. I no, want to something good. different. So it's a mix of Latin and science fiction. Yeah, it's kind of a portmanteau between a Latin term and a science fiction term from the 1800s that that was popular at the time that meant something right so not Star Wars and not Star Trek no right. no okay. no so, so like going way back then okay oh uh, what did you say it translates as roughly strength of an ox strength of an ox okay so possibly something somewhat fortified um, is it Pedro Jimenez Sherry it is not Pedro Jimenez Sherry um <laughs> I'm going to leave that there and just say no. I can tell you that for four points, Napoleon III ordered one million cans of this product to help his troops during the Franco-Prussian War. One million cans? Yes. It doesn't mean to say it was... In cans. In cans, or it was... uh, You wouldn't associate it with being in cans, but essentially he ordered one million cans of... This product for his troops in the Franco-Prussian War. In the Franco-Prussian War, Napoleon the Third. You said yes, um, 1870. Yes, my favorite of all the Napoleons. Um, <laughs> is it something really random like Bovril? <gasps> oh my God, he's <laughs> done it! it. <laughs> he's done it! He's, he's knocked it out of the park. Four points. It's Bovril, the win. It? It's Bovril. It's Bovril. I was yeah. trying to think of like what what could you what can you give to the troops. In a Franco-Prussian war, uh, and if Marie Antoinette says cake and you decide not to go with cake, what would be nourishing? That what would keep them go? Napoleon the first. I know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, fantastic. Yeah, what a, what, that, a, what a score. Back on form. Don't, I'm retiring. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Because for three points, created by a Scottish butcher in Canada in 1870, um, by the year 1888, over 3,000 UK pubs and chemists were selling this. For two points, the product is associated with British football culture and is commonly drunk on terraces from thermoses in England, but from disposable cups in Scotland, because I learned that thermoses are banned from the terraces in Scotland. Really? According to Wikipedia. Oh. Uh, And then for one point, uh, sold as a paste, this product can be eaten on toast like Marmite or made into a drink with hot water, sometimes called beef tea. 
Yeah, you know, I haven't had Bovril, I'd say, in a good 10 to 15 years. I'd, I'd kind of be up for trying it again as a little podcast experiment. There is a really interesting addendum to all these facts, which I wanted to throw in, but I thought it would be too distracting. So apparently, so you haven't drunk it for 15 years. About 15 years ago, Unilever, who now own it, removed all beef from it. So Bovril is actually a vegetarian drink now. Really? Yes. And it's just used some sort of beef flavouring. I, I can't begin to guess how they made <sighs> it. Um, Something that was originally essentially just liquefied beef. There was a, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show Taskmaster on Channel Oh, yes. yes. Love Taskmaster. Uh, one of the tasks they were once given was to recreate Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> and somebody asked for a jar of Bovril to help create the texture of Marmite. I, I think that's uh, genius. Yeah. Um, and of course, Marmite was in fact, and is a yeast product uh, made from excess brewer's yeast. Yes. So there's always a beverage. There's always a beverage angle. Um, I actually wonder, are thermoses still allowed on UK terraces or not? Because, you know, if you ever go to, uh, and I know you've been to the occasional rugby game or a football game, you know, when you buy a bottle of um, water or Coke or whatever to take the lid off? Yeah. Do you know the reason behind that? So you don't throw it at the players? No. Yeah. yeah. So it is if uh, a crush develops and bottles get dropped, they are no longer a trip hazard. Because if the lid was on, it rolls under your foot. Whereas if there's no lid, it flattens under your foot. Now, that is the kind of quality yes. content that people come there for. There you go. I was sure it was it was done. Because uh, so was, so was I until apparently that's the reason. It's uh, a, a bottle will crush rather than roll. Oh, Foxy. My admiration for you is <laughs> only increased. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see how you get on with these questions first before you get too cocky. Um, right, well, so I'm delighted with that. Absolutely. So you should be. Um, haven't we already done it? Yes, we have. I'm just, I'm so high on life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you already asked me. I have. Yeah, it's a 4-3 win for you. All right, let's, let's kill it and come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Business of Beverages. It's been our pleasure to bring you this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and recommend us to one other friend or colleague. As ever, we are independently produced and self-funded, so we appreciate your support in listening, sharing, or reviewing this podcast. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter, where we go by at BizBevPod. If you'd like to support us further, you can find us on buymeacoffee.com forward slash BizBevPod. I'm up and I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the effects of the GABA. <laughs> uh, I, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah.